Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Kelly Tatham, and today we have an incredible guest. I am so honored. She needs no introduction, <laughs> but I'll give her one anyways. Uh, she is the leader of the BC Green Party and has come to, to guide us forward into a new future in British Columbia. Ladies and gentlemen, Sonia Firstenau. Thank you for being here. I'm, I'm so happy to be here. And Kelly, I, I noticed right before you pressed record, you took a deep breath and, and exhaled. And that's one of the things that I've been doing a lot um, these last several weeks is really taking a little bit of time every day to do a bit of meditation, a bit of breathing, and to stay really grounded and really centered. And the the one this morning was interesting because it was about what is your intention? Put your intention out into the world, into the universe. And and what was so clear in my, you know, meditative moment was the intention is service. Mm. Uh, and that is that is what drives me. That is what has pushed me into this world of politics. Um, and that is what gets me up every day and keeps me going is, is that sense of, of being in service. Mm. And that's what I wanted to talk to you about, how you stay calm <laughs> through this experience, because I'm brand new to it. And it has been incredibly exhilarating, but also incredibly overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And the more I learn about how things happen on the inside of the system, the more upset and frustrated I become. And I'm asking myself the question, how am I going to stay calm through this experience? How am I going to stay grounded? How am I not going to break down into tears every moment at all of the injustice in the world? Mm -hmm. Yep. It's, uh, you know, I'm going to go, I'm a storyteller. So <laughs> um, when I was 18 years old, I was a waitress in Edmonton at a fairly fancy, you know, private dining club. <laughs> uh, Edmonton, what was it called? I can't remember even what it was called. But the maitre d' pulled me aside one day and she said, you know, I've watched you. And at first I couldn't understand what was happening. But the busier it gets, the, the more slowly you move. And then she said, but I, I observed that you were being very intentional. So you would, you know, come out of the kitchen and drop off plates at one table, but then you'd do six things on your way back. So it was clear that you were kind of mapping it out in your mind. Uh, and so while the other waiters and waitresses were getting flustered, um, in in those moments, I would get more and more calm. And that's been sort of something my whole life when I was, you know, I've had three babies and um, went through childbirth with a really calm frame, calm state of mind. Um, one of my babies is 26 now. So, <laughs> um, and then it, you know, in our efforts here in Seanigan, up against what felt like impossible odds, trying to get a permit revoked for that contaminated landfill and and year over year really being told you're never going to succeed and i just stayed in this place of there's no other possible outcome at the end of this than this being stopped it has to be stopped and so just that intention um driven approach to things 
helps keep me very calm. I do wake up every morning with a bit of a jolt, as I'm sure you are as well. Um, campaigning is quite quite an adrenaline-fueled experience, but um, I'm also learning, you know, it's better for me, it's better for everybody if I can pull myself back down, be grounded, be really centered, recognize that for the job that I have to do, which is really to communicate and try to be as clear as I can in all of my communications, that calmness and that groundedness is really the best thing I can do. And so I don't listen to uh, the radio. I'm not, I'm not following what all the pundits are saying. I'm not paying close attention on social media, anything like that. I have one job and I'm just staying very focused on that job. Absolutely. You know, I think staying off Twitter is probably <laughs> the best advice. <laughs> Very triggering place. Yeah, although Mayan Mayan Kreitzman, one of our candidates, wrote a beautiful tweet thread this morning that somebody. So my my amazing team will send me nice things to see, uh, which I appreciate. And Mayan's uh, tweet this morning that I read was just so. It actually brought tears to my eyes because I she talked about gathering in the circle the other morning and and talking about integrity and staying whole through this, which really does matter to me. And, and it really meant a lot that she'd s- sort of told that story on Twitter. Mm. Mm-hmm. Maya and I spoke about that as well and how, how grateful we are to be. I know Maya from before this experience. We, I met her through Extinction Rebellion. Mm-hmm. And when I heard that she was also running, I was just so heartened mm. and felt like, someone else who 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 holds what i'm holding is going to be there with me and to to have to be invited into circle with you and to share with you um has just it it gives me hope and and when i was considering you know after the snap election was announced in that wild week <laughs> where monday i was wandering around listless tuesday i was crying and went like okay i have to do something about this and and then that's when I began to learn more about you and listen to you speak and your leadership and your vision gave me that hope. Mm-hmm. And so I'm so grateful for that. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying reminds me of one of my favorite quotes. Um, I've been studying uh, some post-activism teachings, which mm-hmm. are rooted in Indigenous wisdom, because I wasn't feeling like the activism was doing enough. And Bioakamalafe, a Nigerian scholar, uh, says, in order to find our way, we must become generally, generously lost. Mm. The times are urgent. We must slow down. Yeah. Yep. Hearing that that resonates. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. everything feels so urgent and and dire and because mm. it is. And yet we will not get to where we need to go with that attitude. And it, it, so it's this very, com- it's very complex what we need to hold right now, the sense of urgency and, and patience at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, it, it, I really learned in our time in Shawnigan because it felt so urgent. I mean, we had trucks coming into the community and dumping giant loads of soil full of contaminants right in our watershed. We would be standing on that road in the freezing cold, you know, rain and snow and wind and um and just just literally weeping at what was happening 
Um, and, and what became so clear in that was the outcome that we wanted was a healthy future for the community. And so we had to go about what we were doing with that same outcome in our actions. And so we had to be loving to each other and kind. And one of the things when the the blockades would happen in the morning, the trucks would get blocked way back down the road. And the, the, the community members would bring cookies and muffins and cocoa, hot chocolate and coffee and give it to the truck drivers because they weren't the enemy. They were just doing a job. And, uh, and it was really, you know, you can see the images from those years um, and especially those very intense months that we were in. Uh, and there's this, I, I, I called it this kind of joyfulness that, that emanated from, from those, uh, those hard, hard, hard times. But we were together and we were taking care of each other and we were remembering that we were in this out of a place of love. So we had to act from that place of love. Mm. I think politics could use some more love. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, you know, I think about this a lot. I've been thinking, you know, lately, because, you know, I, I never imagined myself as an MLA. I certainly never imagined myself as the leader of a political party. Like, this was not in the cards, right? I'm just, I'm a teacher. I'm a mom. I like knitting a lot. Um, novels. I'd love to be reading novels right now. Um, and, 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 uh, you know, at every step, it's been a sort of like, I don't see what I need to see in this world. I don't, I can't find, you know, and, and one of the things about you and Mayan and so many of the candidates who are stepping up is I'm seeing it. You guys are giving me so much hope. I'm, 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 you know, I, I'm not, when I'm standing there with the, the candidates in Vancouver and, and we're in that circle, it is as nourishing to me as you as anything because I see the future. I see the hope. I've been waiting a long time for all of you to, to join me, and I'm so glad you're here. Um, it, it, but I look at how, how politics plays out in the legislature, and it's 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 a game, right? It doesn't matter who's on what side of the house. They play the game the, the same way. It's a it's a you know we're going to get you, and we're not going to answer your questions. And um, and the people that are there, like Andrew Wilkinson and John Horgan, have been around the BC legislature since the 1990s, both of them, and uh, they've been playing this game for a long time. And I, for me, it's not a game. I it, it it's the furthest thing from a game that I can imagine. It is the most weighty burden uh, that I can possibly bear to think that we, we are either making decisions that move us towards a healthier world, towards a safer, a more equitable, a more, a more justice-driven world, or we're either letting things continue the way they are, or even worse, making decisions that move us in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's, you know, the decision of the NDP and the, the Liberals to, to add billions in subsidies to, to the fossil fuel industry is a decision that pushes us in the, in the opposite direction. And, and, you know, we, we spoke to that over and over in the last, the last speech I gave 
on the final vote on that bill, I was, I was begging, I was pleading with the other MLAs to, to do what they knew was the right thing on this, to just stand up for what they, they, they must know at some level um, was the right thing. And none of them did. Uh, it was uh, it was a very heartbreaking week. It was it was um, very lonely, very sad, uh, and a moment of like realizing, you know, essentially that's eighty four climate change deniers to be able to do that, you know, and and you can't you can't say I believe in climate action, and then give billions of dollars to the fossil fuel industry. It, it doesn't square. Yeah, I. I just don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand. Especially, they have all the information. They've they've engaged with the climate science, and yet it it carries on. This it does. It literally does not make sense to me. It's it's the game. So it's about you know everything being measured through some kind of political lens. Um, the story of what economic and political success is. So if that story is something about big projects, mega projects, right? This has been, an, this is, these are old stories. These are stories that have driven political decision-making for, for decades, if not a century. And one of my uh, favorite philosophers talks about, Charles Eisenstein talks about the new story, right? And I've, I've seen him speak. I actually got to drive him <laughs> from Shawnigan to the airport. It was the most amazing hour of my life because um, I'd been following him for a long time. And when he talks about the new story of the people, the new story of our world, the story of connectedness um, that resonates so deeply with me, and this is how I look at what we can be doing is writing a new story of politics, writing a new story of decision-making, um, a story that doesn't believe all the myths that have gotten us to this place, but instead says, this is where we are. There are a lot of challenges, a lot of problems, but we can actually, we can, we can, every chapter can move us to a better place. And that connectedness does have to be, you know, you and I are connected, but, but everybody is connected in some way. We're also connected to the, the earth, the trees, the water, the air. I sat outside this morning for a couple minutes while Stella was, uh, doing her morning rituals, and uh, there were so many birds singing. Like I, it had been a long time since I'd heard that many birds, and I just thought, you know, what a what a gift to be listening to this glorious morning sound of these birds celebrating the beginning of the day this way, and remembering that, of course, I'm connected to those birds, right? Yeah, there is no separation. No. I, I know Charles speaks so beautifully to that. It's the myth of separation mm -hmm. that created all of this. Mm -hmm. And we know in many indigenous languages, there is no word for nature or me. It's, it's, a, it's part of the English language. It's part of many colonial languages that have created this objectification and this other. Mm -hmm. and, and then we operate on that. And to my mind, the whole political system is built on that. Mm -hmm. this notion of separation yeah. Yeah. and we look at people as individuals instead of as communities as understanding that what happens to someone over there is happening to me at the same time yeah 
Yeah. And the violence pervades and the trauma pervades and we're all experiencing it, except so many people don't understand and they're suppressing it and yeah. suppressing it. And I think that's why they can't take in the information from the climate scientists. They can't take in the the research about basic income and how it will make things cheaper for the government in the long run. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. We, we, we exist in this kind of eternal now as well, right? Like. The, even the kinds of promises coming from the other parties, like, okay, we'll give everybody a thousand dollars if they vote for us. <laughs> and I think, okay, so that's uh, the, apparently the calculation is somewhere in 1.3 billion. So imagine if we took a 1.3 billion and said, we are going to invest in public education so that we have the highest per student funding in the, in the country instead of the second lowest. We're going to have those classrooms that are small, the manageable, we're going to be nimble. We're not going to have a feeling of scarcity in our public education system anymore because that that's the wrong feeling to have for a young person to start their life in a system that tells them this is a world of scarcity. Uh, it, you know, six or seven billion dollars cut from the PST. We, we could house everybody in this province and ensure that they have healthy food, that they have access to services. Like, I, 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 I'm gobsmacked um, at how we still, and and yet we know the outcomes, right? We know what happens when when ta- when there's massive tax cuts. We know what happens when you know Ralph Klein gave four hundred dollars to every Albertan um, and and eviscerated services in that province. Um, it's not a good outcome. It's not a good long-term view, uh, and we have to find a way, um, not only for politicians to see that, you know, you can't you can't work in this moment of eternal now. Our job, you know, when I first got elected to area as area director in Shawnigan in 2014, my one of my kids at the time was eight or nine years old, and uh, she said, "Well, what's your job? What do you do?" And I said. We're we're building the future, we're shaping the future. That's our job, and I I feel like a lot of people in these roles don't see it that way. Like they see it as this kind of right now or next election, but but we are shaping the future. And in the past, those who have shaped the future for the good, we we are so indebted to them, and those in the past who have taken away things and and you know, built these systems that let people fall through the cracks the way they do. Well, we're paying for that now. And it's a high cost. It's a high cost to pay. So. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. So when it comes to reconciling with, with the colonial trauma, mm-hmm. what, what do you see are, are our next steps? Because the government has acknowledged mm-hmm. What's happened, but there has been no mm. tangible action. So we passed the Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act last year. Adam Olson had a huge and very pivotal role to play in that. Really, you know, meeting with the minister, I think, every second week and and just relentlessly working to make that move forward. And And I'm so proud of Adam's work on that. But then... The very next legislative session, we had some bills that significantly impacted Indigenous people. Um, 
Bill 17, which was to remove the self-sustainability clause from uh, BC Hydro, which would have really undermined not only the existing clean energy projects that First Nations have invested in and were encouraged to invest in by the previous government, um, and, and that looked at, you know, it could have stark, stark implications for their uh, sustainability and economic well-being. But also Bill 22, which looked to detain youth um, that had suffered in a, an overdose against their will. Uh, experts, you know, from the chief coroner to the representative of children and youth to Union of BC Indian Chiefs, um, many health professionals raised a lot of concerns about this bill. And indicated that they were they were very worried it could actually do more harm than good and could result in more fatalities. Um, and so, on both of these, uh, UNDRIP had no you know there was no change in how government brought forward this legislation despite having put in UNDRIP. Um, and so we said to to the NDP government, you know, go back, do the work, do the work with First Nations, do the work with the Indigenous communities. Um, Come back and show us that that work has been done. That UNDRIP means something. That that this law that we brought in actually means something. And instead, you know, they called an election and, and tried to suggest that us holding them to account um, and raising the issues that had been raised by many, many experts and by Indigenous communities uh, was somehow, uh, you know, a problem for them, and they want to have complete power in the in the legislature, and that's why we're in this election. People should really recognize how serious that is, what the implications of that are. Which is, this is a government that wants total obedience and um, and no accountability, and doesn't want other perspectives. They want to be able to say, "We've got an agenda. We're implementing our agenda. We don't care what other people say," and that's wrong. In my own work as MLA. Um, the apprehension of Indigenous children continues today at the same rate that it did during the residential school era. Um, I think a lot of people don't know that. And the harm and the trauma to families and to Indigenous continues, uh, communities continues. And so we've worked a lot in community here with community. Um, we've, we, we started by, you know, just shining a light getting media coverage of what's happening, uh, ensuring that people understood what was going on here and across BC. And that resulted in a, a, a private donor coming forward and saying, how can I help? And and that those funds, $25,000, went to two Couch and Tribes women to do an assessment of, of what, are, what is the reality in Couch and Tribes vis-a-vis -vis child welfare? And what are the solutions that the community could bring forward? And this is the most important thing. It's not for the government or Ministry of Children and Families to continue along the same old path of saying, we're going to tell you what you need to do to raise your children properly. It is for the community to bring forward those solutions and to work on that, to, to recognize, as UNDRIP recognizes, the sovereignty that Indigenous people have over their children. Um, we've seen examples, Namgi's First Nation, where they have worked as a community. They have not had an apprehension of a child in over a decade. Carcross Taggart up in the Yukon has written their own child welfare law. The first part of their legislation is taught in preschool. It is the history of them as a people. That's the beginning of understanding child welfare because 
the the well-being of the child is connected to the well-being of the community the children are the center of the community and if you learn that in school then it becomes it becomes part of everything you understand about your world hawaiit also writing their own uh legislation um these are the examples that we should be looking to to recognize that government the the role of the province and the federal government is to provide the financial means and support for these communities to do the work that they need to be doing and and to stop imposing on them uh these kind of colonial mindsets of you know this is how you raise a child um so that's been very important work for me and I'll continue it um I w- it was a very I was so surprised at how really I was the only MLA really working on this. We got calls from people across the province asking for help because our our office was becoming recognized as an office that was engaging on these issues. Um and so that's that's one one piece of work that has been really important to me and and of course building relationships. Um, we built the Couch and Leadership Group, which included Chief Seymour of Couch and Tribes, as well as the MP, MLA, the mayors, uh, the um, health officer, chair of the school board, our staff sergeant for the RCMP. And that was because we all recognized if we all work together, we all come from different political backgrounds, different jurisdictions, but we all serve the same people in our community. And if we work together, we are better at at serving and being in service. So thank yeah. You. Thank you. Okay, thank you Kelly. It's a real pleasure. I can't wait to talk to you again. Keep like going, you. stay calm, breathe deeply. Meditations are great and uh just be you. Thank you. Thank you for that and thank you for all that you do. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. Okay.